That's right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Principles of Fitness podcast. My name is Cameron Harn, and last time I left you all off with a quote from Tony Robbins, or I started you off with a quote from Tony Robbins. Um, And I got to say, I've been going back and forth between these inspirational quotes because it's only after we take action do they really mean anything. So today I'm going to leave you all off with an executive quote. Just get after it. With that being said, my guest today leads the charge in behavior change, and he is aiming to positively influence all of the lives around him. You may have heard of him. His name is Bobby Capuccio, and he is an author, speaker, coach, content curator for PT on the Net, and he was the co-founder of PTA Global. Just all-around amazing guy. Bobby and I sit down for about an hour, and we talk about so much information, uh, primarily on behavior change and how the people in his life growing up influenced him and changed his behavior and his perception about himself, which led him to become one of the leading authorities in the fitness industry. Now, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, so why don't we go ahead and get after it. This is episode number seven with Bobby Capuccio. All right. So we're live. Anything that you say will be recorded, by the way. I, I say Ed, the weirdest shit you can imagine. No, I'm right. known for it. Bobby, for the people listening, can you just give us a little background about yourself, what you're doing currently? Well, my background, I guess, is as boring as anybody else's. Um, what I'm doing currently is uh, just speaking, writing, um, doing a lot of like what you do. By the way, did anybody tell, ever tell you you look a little bit like Tim Ferriss? No. Yeah. Ryan has told me that before. I'm like, I don't believe it. It's a, it's a little bit weird, and you do podcasts. That's interesting. Well, I don't know if I'll ever become Tim Ferriss, but that's a great thing to... Well, you can't. He's already taken. I but know. it's getting out there and introducing people to There the we go. It's kind of like what I do right now. I'm working with Richard Boyd on Yes, We're Back. And the whole purpose of the company is to take brilliant people who may not have had a platform because they're too busy engaging in the act of winning mm-hmm. to basically be engaged in the act of being recognized winning, kind of like Ryan, yeah. you know? Not a lot of people know who he is, but you sit down and you talk to him and he's in the trenches every single day. Every day. Working on a cause that he feels is worthwhile and it develops other people and his clients around him. To me, that's a winner. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily how many likes you have, you know, how many people know who you are or the height of your popularity, but the depth of your contribution every day. So I'm helping to create a voice for people like that. Um, That's what I've done in the past uh, with, you know, I was the content curator for PT on the net, worked with a company called FitPro, and one of the best aspects of that job is you get to go out and find brilliant people who are doing more than just hanging out, making a living, but making a difference and showcase those people, take tools and resources and insights from them that can be spread across an entire industry and live beyond them. I love that. You know, I love being on stage. You know, I love not being on stage. I love writing, but just as much as any of that, I like finding people who can do that as well or better than I can yeah. and basically giving them a platform. I guess when I was about 19 years old, a lot of things happened to me around 19, 20, life-changing events. That was like, that was like the, the, the cusp of where my life could have went one way or another. And one of the best insights I ever got from somebody was you, you will be successful. And he wasn't talking about monetary success. He was talking about when you wake up in the morning and you want to do something, 
And at the end of the day, you come to the realization that's what you spent your time doing. That's successful. And I think we're only really happy when we're growing and we're only really growing when we're sharing and contributing. So I don't think that takes place in a vacuum. He said, if you want to experience that level of intrapersonal success, go out and find people who are a lot smarter than you are and surround yourself with them. And they followed up with, given your level of intellect, that shouldn't be too hard for you to do. Yeah. Which I think was kind of an insult, but he was kind of right. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's like your, uh, what is it? Your network is your net worth. I just had a guy on uh, yesterday who said that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it couldn't be more true. It is. You know, it, it is true in the sense that anytime you ever see somebody accomplishing something magnanimous, mm-hmm. you're not looking at a megalomaniac on a mission. Not to disagree with Peter Drucker hell of a lot smarter than I'll ever be. <laughs> However, it's always collective efforts. You know, like we, we love to talk about, you know, uh, Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or Richard Branson or Steve Jobs. But what we don't see is the literally thousands of people behind them every day yeah. where if you did not have the ability to galvanize those efforts, it won't work. So everything is collective effort. Everything is done through a network. However, I think one of the primary reasons of having a network is not to monetize that network. You hear so much, well, how are you going to monetize that? Yeah. Oh, well, you've, you, well, you've got a, you have this many followers on Facebook and you're sharing. <laughs> how are you going to monetize that? Oh, you just got married. Well, how are you going to monetize her? I mean, it, it, the purpose of having a community, mm-hmm. I think, is to serve that community. Yeah. And together... You come up with insights, you figure it out, you find ways to create value. And because you're always paid in correspondence to the value that you're giving, the more value you give, the more value you're going to be paid. Not always, because not every endeavor is is basically created around that, but most of the time. Most of the time, if you don't like your paycheck, take a look at your value. Yeah. But I, I think creating things to monetize things... Mm, it's kind of like can I the guy rocking up at a bar, can I buy you a drink? They're not being friendly. They're up to something. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that attracts people to you more than anything is authenticity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Bobby, where did you come up with all this experience, all this knowledge? Did you go to school for this or what, what is your background? I went to school. I did pretty well. Um, I think, you know, I mean, my GPA was like, 3.6. Okay. So I was doing okay, but I was screwing around just enough. You know, you don't want to have too high of a GPA, otherwise people don't trust you. But I actually wound up dropping out of uh, dropping out of college. Really? Dropping out of college, not because my mentor told me to drop out of college, because I remember we had that conversation. He felt pretty guilty because I was so gung ho with academia and school. And you know, after working in his company for a little bit, I decided to leave. And he was like, "Wait, wait, that wasn't the point." But he constantly, interesting guy, he constantly put me in situations that were extremely uncomfortable. That's almost a cliche. You know, Uh you got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Well, the whole nature of being uncomfortable is it sucks, but it's necessary. So, Can you give me an example of a situation he would put you in? (laughs) Well, a little bit too much background, more than anybody ever wants to hear. I grew up um, with Tourette's. 
Okay. Grew up with a little bit of brain damage. Um, I was physically deformed. And I know looking at me as handsome as I am now, it's oh, hard to yeah. imagine. Yeah, but um, I was severely deformed in my legs and my face. Just something went dramatically wrong. And I was growing up in Coney Island in the 80s. I was growing up in a very abusive, violent family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you got a kid with Tourette's who's deformed, uh, got Coke bottle glasses. You're going to get some blunt force trauma to the head. So <laughs> that being put on experimental medication like Haldol did a lot of damage to my wow. brain. So I started developing a belief system that was pretty stupid. And part of what developed that belief system is a lot of the adults I would come in contact with like, hey, you're pretty stupid. So I thought, you know, all these adults, they can't, you know, one or two, yeah, but all of them can't possibly be wrong. So I said, ah, you know what? What I lack in intellect, I'm just going to make up in work ethic. I'll just do a lot more because I'm not capable of doing a lot better. Mm-hmm. And I met a guy who thought, wow, that's that's complete and utter bullshit. <laughs> and you know, he was he was kind of like, he was for me the way I see personal trainers for other people. Okay. Where you've been like striving but not arriving at the yeah. fulfillment of what you aspire to be. You kind of want it, but you don't believe it. And you kind of have this vague ambiguity rather than a meaningful specific in terms of where you want to wind up. But man, you can't see yourself going the whole way. So what do you do for these people? Well, what any great guy does for anybody, you help them go just as far as they can see. Because when they get there, they'll see farther. Yeah. And he was that person for me. So he not only encouraged me and demonstrated, no, your, your limitations are not reality. They're just your interpretation of reality. It's a story. Yeah. And just like any story, you can rewrite it. But he, he also forced me a little bit beyond my comfort zone in terms of, you know, I, I thought I'll never, be, I'll never be as smart a trainer as other people. Mm-hmm. But then I didn't want to disappoint him. That became my driving motivation. Was that a healthy motivation? I don't know, but it was a very useful one. And to not disappoint him, I would stay up and study day after day, night after night. I would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning just so I could read just a little bit before my client. But then something interesting started happening. Other people started saying, wow, that's really valuable, what you taught us. So I realized, wow, you know what? I can apply myself and assimilate information that can be disseminated and other people are affected positively because of it. So I started to crystallize this purpose and I got really good at personal training. Yeah. And then he said, you know what? You should probably be a head trainer because you can only impact so many people in a day. Mm -hmm. But if you can impact 10 trainers who can impact as many people as you impact, you've increased your output by 10 times. Now, this is way before, like, Grant Cardone. So that was, like, kind of like an original thought in his head. And my answer was, like, absolutely not. Because if you put me in that position, what if I sucked as a manager? Mm-hmm. And, by the way, in the beginning, oh, my God, I did. I was, like, the worst manager I think anybody has ever worked for. <laughs> but what he would do is fire me. Every time I got really good at a position, he would offer me a promotion. And if I would say, no, you know what? I'm, I'm good here. I'm comfortable. He would go, great. You know what? You're fired. <laughs> Oh, and now that you're unemployed, you know, we're interviewing tomorrow. Being that you're probably not doing anything, you might as well, like, just, I don't know, put on your fancy dress shirt and come down for an interview and just see how it goes. Because you've got nothing to lose, do you? 
bastard. And I would do that and I would go become a head trainer. Then he would do the same thing for, um, for you know, company director. And then, you know, it wasn't necessarily a promotion, but, you know, a lateral move or he wanted me to go into sales and he would do that. So he kept on firing me and forcing me to take positions through multiple perspectives in the company until I got good at them or at least until I gave them you know, a solid effort. Yeah. And that was probably one of the best things anyone had ever done for me, but it wasn't comfortable. And I, I don't think at the time, thank you would have been the words that fell off my lip. Definitely you, but that would have been another word before that. But Okay. In this process that he's challenging your comfort levels, where, because you and I have a, a, a shared story where we turn towards law enforcement. Was that in the middle of this process? Did you turn towards law enforcement in the middle of you personal training? In the beginning. I think you can make an amazing contribution from anywhere. And I think yeah. you know, law enforcement is, is definitely one area where you can make a contribution to society and a good one. But I wanted to go into law enforcement because I grew up in an extremely violent household. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you had uh, ACS in New York, which is child services, um, at my house once every six months. And you know, they would do virtually nothing. And so I wanted to get involved in law enforcement and and like special victims before I even knew that what that was. I mean, yeah. law and order hadn't been invented yet. But I thought <laughs> if I could just get involved in law enforcement, I could help people who are otherwise helpless. Mm-hmm. And that was a story I had in my head. But you know, I, I realized that you know you can you can get people out of a rough situation, but through wellness and fitness, my mentor convinced me. You know that my best definition for the wellness industry is deciding on your own self-determined sense of meaning and purpose for your life and then optimize the physical, mental, and emotional capacity to live at the highest expression of that thing which is most important to you. I couldn't see doing anything better for anybody else. And, you know, yes, you know, I was suffering from abuse, but I was not my abuse. You know, yes, I, you know, suffered from physical deformities, but I was not my physical deformities. You know, because when I got out of an abusive environment, did that, did my my life change? No, because mm. I was still suffering from that abusive environment. Um, you know, when I when I had four major reconstructive surgeries, did that change my world? No, because I still saw the world through the eyes of someone who was physically deformed. You know, my way out of that was by focusing on something bigger, focusing outside of myself, focusing on other people. My reprieve, where I got to not be me for a day and not focus on what's wrong, was when I got other people to start to look in their lives as to what's right and what the possibilities were for them. So for me, it wasn't looking inward and working on myself that changed my life. It was looking outward and working on other people. Hmm. So that shifted my focus from law enforcement to, you know what? I think the fitness industry is where it's at. Transformational experiences is what I want to dedicate myself to. Not just so I can create a business, but so I can create a cause that attracts other people magnetically. With this, you're, you're uncovering a lot of truths about yourself. What are, like, what are some of the things that you've uncovered? What are some of the things that you're trying to uncover for other people? One, you don't have to find yourself. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, there's so much conventional thinking, and conventional thinking doesn't necessarily make it useful thinking. It's just common. So you don't you don't find yourself; you create yourself. 
I don't think there's this predetermined who I am, and people utilize that a lot of times as a defense mechanism. Well, this is just who I am. And basically what they're saying is back off and respect my autonomy. If who you are is outside of your control and it's predetermined, you shouldn't ever feel really good about any of your attributes and you shouldn't feel particularly bad about any of your liabilities because you had no say in the matter. You know, I don't believe in genetic determinism. Um, I believe that that's an influence, but um, Eric Kandel, who won the Nobel Prize uh, partially for proving that genetic determinism doesn't exist because of neuroplasticity, you know, there, there is this construct. I think who you are is a creative element because we're not capable of looking at our lives with unbiased objectivity. I mean, the more things you're passionate about and the more things you commit yourself to, the less biased you are just by the nature of the decisions that you've made and how you've justified those decisions. So if you're completely passionate and committed to something, you're subjective about things. Mm -hmm. You know, the older you get and the more you accomplish and the more things you see, the bigger the bag of walking biases you become. So even your most ardent attempt at at this factual autobiography is in part interpretation. So everybody's life story is a work of fiction. What are you going to create? Yeah. That's what I learned about myself. You can create it by changing your story. So what have you created for others along your story? Me? Nothing. I've created <laughs> nothing for other people. Oh, my God. I've never changed a life. I think I, I hopefully I've influenced a life. Okay. You know, and, and you know, what, what does it mean to influence? Well, I looked it up. It's the ability to positively affect. Affect. Not control, not direct. Uh, affect. Okay. The development, the character and behaviors of someone or something. I've held the space for people that my belief is greater than your doubt. I know you're just getting started in this. I know you have a long list of stories about why this might not be possible, but I've sat with people not exactly like you, but similar to you, yeah. you know, hundreds of times. I've done thousands of hours of PT sessions and I've seen like people go from tragic to magic yeah. in a relatively short period of time, like six months when you're about to take the biggest step of your life is an extremely long time, but in retrospect, it's a very small time indeed. Very short. So even though it might not seem possible to you, I've heard that conversation from people before, and I didn't argue. I rolled with that resistance. I just allowed them to take the, the little micro steps that compounded into a much bigger identity, and when your identity grows, so does your scope of possibility. So I hold that space. My belief is greater than your doubt. I also hold the space that you're doing the best you can with the resources you have. If you're struggling up against yourself, again, like I said, always striving but never seem to be arriving, there's nothing wrong with you. Kind of like what Ryan said on your last podcast. Mm -hmm. And I'm not here to fix you because guess what? You're not broken. Yeah. You're not lazy. You're not unmotivated. You don't lack character. You don't lack willpower. You maybe lack alignment between what you truly value not what you think you should value or what your neighbors or your teachers or your parents or your spouse thinks you should value, but what you truly value and your behaviors. And once you get that sorted, all you lack is a decision. So I've never changed anyone. We hear, I, I hear that in the fitness industry all the time. Well, I change lives. Really? I don't. Because if I change your life... I hold you in the perspective of being sympathetic. I am sympathetic towards no one. Hmm. I hold the space of empathy. Sympathy is when you feel for someone. 
Empathy is when you feel with someone. Yeah. Sympathy is when I don't respect you enough to hold you in a space other than a victim. And, you know, poor you is really not an empowering relationship. No. Yes, it is possible. I'm not going to tell you the direction to go or the speed, but I'm going to extract some of that from you. And if you just trust this process, no, I cannot do it for you. And doing it for you would be the worst possible thing because you wouldn't get the self-efficacy, the self-respect, the confidence that comes from setting your own direction and looking back and going, wow, I've done that. So I'm not going to do that for you, but I'm going to facilitate the process with you. What's the process for you? What is it? How do you affect somebody's life? How do you push them to that area? What are some of the the tools you use or the, okay. the skills that you have to affect people's lives like that? Well, I, I think there's a few f- principles. Um, probably would answer this a little bit different this afternoon, later on, if, once I get a chance to think about it. But I think it's three things. It's intention, inquiry, and solutions-based thinking. Okay. And I, I think, you know, intention is more important than technique. I think a lot of people think, well, you know, what are the techniques to build rapport? Or what are the techniques to get someone? You don't get someone to do anything. Yeah. You offer them options and give them the respect of choosing. Holding people in very high personal regard creates safety. Safety creates candor. Candor creates discovery. And discovery is what creates behaviors. And behaviors are the only thing that lead to transformation. I mean, we talk all the time about, you got to be motivated, you got to be committed. These are just, it means no such thing. Like, look at these kids right here, right? They're playing a game. Whatever game they're playing, you know, if, let's say, I don't even know what they're doing, but let's say they were playing football or soccer, if you like. Yeah, they are playing football. Oh, are they? Okay. I couldn't see that guy. Okay, yeah, because it looked like a bunch of little kids running around (laughs) aimlessly. Um, Which they do from time to time. Which... I'm a big fan of Unbound Play, but that's a totally different, uh, totally different podcast. <laughs> Let's say this kid runs and he, he doesn't get a touchdown, right? He gets sacked somewhere out on this field. Nobody's going to look at him and go, but wow, he was so committed. Give him the point. Or, you know, wow, he was motivated. You know, and he could, he could score a touchdown and nobody's going to take it away from him because it's like, you know what? Yes, I know you actually scored, but... You didn't seem very motivated. So that one doesn't count. (laughs) What's the only thing that counts? What are the behaviors that led to the result? Yeah. So I hold the space for people that, yes, you're capable if you'll trust the process, right? Number one. Number two, inquiry is far more powerful than advocacy. There's no motivational speech I'm going to give you that's gonna overcome your sense of autonomy. Mm-hmm. There's, there, there's no pep talk, there's no level of assertion or research I'm gonna present to you that's gonna contradict your beliefs, especially if it touches upon something that you're afraid of or a level of ambivalence that you're already struggling with. However, if I can ask the right questions to draw you out and allow you to come to your own conclusions, you're a lot more committed to your own assertions than my assertions, aren't you? Yeah. 
So understanding the, pr the process of inquiry is critical. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is, I'm just here to provide solutions. I'm not here to do the work for you. You know, I'm not here to basically judge your decisions as good decisions or bad decisions. It's just there's something you want and there are certain decisions that are in correspondence with that. And there are certain conditions, um, certain decisions that work against that. And I'm here to give you some insights that maybe allow you to pick things that are not right or wrong, but useful versus not as useful. Make sense? Yeah. So that's how, that's how I approach behavior change. So what decisions are not useful? What are some things that, what are roadblocks that you see people face that oh my God. they need to overcome? Wow. Um, that's, that's a pretty deep rabbit hole. I think one of the biggest ones is conflict. Okay. Where, you know, let, let, let's take a simple one. Internal, external. Um, I, I think, I think every, I had a conversation with Ryan where he said, you know, everything is external because even your internal conflicts, you know, show up in your external environment. So yeah. let's just call them conflicts between, you know, I want one thing over here, but I want another thing over here. Mm -hmm. And if I get this thing that I want, well, what if I lose this other thing? Um, I've I, had that conversation plenty of times. And, and you, one thing that really pisses me off, and I'm going to go on a rant, is... Rant away. What my friend Dr. Roy Sugarman refers to as an attribution error. And this is when you see someone who says they want something, yet they're behaving in a way that's contrary to what they say they want. I want to lose weight, but you see them eating ice cream. Um, you know, I want a great marriage, yet I'm having an affair. Um, so there's these things that you're not going to necessarily get what you say you want because there are things that you do or fail to do that's stopping that from being actualized in your life. And we look at these people very often and go, oh, well, you just don't want it badly enough. It's simple. You want this, you do this, that's it. Wow. Be behavior change is so easy. Yet when... We contradict ourselves when we behave in contradiction to what we say we want or who we want to be, even bigger and deeper than that. We attribute it to external factors. Well, it was traffic or, you know, my boss said this. But when we see other people struggling with the same things we struggle with, no, it's not external factors beyond their control. It's internal attributes that they seem to lack. Mm -hmm. And that is it, anything you have read on behavior change would say that that is complete and utter bullshit. And these are the same people that say, well, neuroscience, well, that's a buzzword. No, it, it's an in-depth area of study that tries to give us insight, not based on our own worldview or what's easy or, or what we've believed in the past, but insight as to truly why people do the things that they do. And there are people who are spending very many years of study and application and evaluation and modification of strategies and methodologies to help people be more aligned with what they want in life. So it's not a buzzword. And there are people deeply in the trenches working very hard and I have a lot of respect for them. You know, when, when you approach somebody with change, if you don't hold space for unconditional positive regard, you're not gonna get very far mm -hmm. because they're gonna see you as a threat. And their synaptic networks, their biochemistry, their hormonal profile will start to adapt itself to avoiding whatever is that that's threatening. I think maybe more of an, more of a deeply rooted mechanism in human beings is more so than what we want is what we want to avoid. We yeah. are more wired to avoid threat than we are for gain. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, if I lived 20,000 years ago, 
And I was always focused on pleasure seeking. I was always looking for the fattest elk or the sweetest berry. Yeah, I would have a, I would have a good time, but not for very long. Yeah. Because other people who are far more vigilant about pain avoidance, like, you know, what's trying to eat me, you know, or what warring tribe is following me, they're more likely to live a little bit longer and procreate. Me, not so much. So that doesn't make us negative thinkers, it makes us human beings. And if you present yourself like a threat, you only perpetuate the cycle that puts people in a situation contrary to what they truly want in the first place. So you can have someone that says, well, you know, I really want to lose weight. Well, why is that important to you? Oh, so I could be more attractive. And, but deep down inside, you know, they're afraid that the reason why their marriage is failing isn't because they've let themselves go. It's they've married the wrong person. And, you know, they remember, like, they promised their parents, who were also divorced, I'll never let this happen to me. I've seen what this has done to our family. And, you know, I'm going to have a good marriage. So the whole identity... Their, their, their whole sense of worth is around keeping their commitments to themselves, to their family, maybe to, to their kids, and something's really broken. And they keep saying, well, if I lose the weight, well, I could fix it. You know? And as they start to lose the weight, there's this big what if. You know, what if? What if I lose the weight and the problems still exist? Then it's something much bigger than weight loss. Something in, in my fundamental ideology is broken. So that can cause conflicts in behavior, and what do you do? You sabotage it, and you go back to the behaviors that created the problem in the first place, because as long as I can keep within this constant cycle of losing weight, blaming that, gaining it all back, I never have to face what's really going wrong. And that's just one instance, you know, where someone will stop smoking. Well, everyone in my life demands something from me. You know, my boss demands something from me, my kids, my spouse. So I feel like I'm not accepted for who I am unconditionally, and I'm constantly under stress. But, you know, for a certain amount of money, I've got 20 of my friends that will never judge me, never yell at me, never leave me. And this is my psychological break. And the second I light up one of these friends, you know, it, it releases L-DOPA, which then is a precursor to dopamine. And I get to feel good for very little investment in, in the short term, yeah. long term. It could cost me my entire life and it most, most likely will. So how do you get somebody out of that loop? Because I myself has w- have witnessed this um, personally. Mm-hmm. My mother has even said that you get to a certain point and you sabotage yourself. That you see, you know, you're running for the finish line and then you're just like, oh, but what if? And then I just, I stop myself, I derail myself. I'm still struggling with it sometimes. Where uh, communication is a big problem that I have sometimes where... I don't want to disappoint people. I don't want to let a client down, a friend down. And I'll, maybe I'll shoot a text back and be like, yeah, I'll be there. And then when the time comes, I'm like, hey, I'm not actually going to be there. I, you know, something came up. And I, it's only until recently that I've recognized that. How do you break somebody out of that cycle? There's, there's a couple of ways. One is dealing with aspects of your inner world. The other is dealing with aspects of your outer world. So... What do you value mostly? And a lot of people don't know what they value. Mm-hmm. That's a very hard question for a lot of people. Yeah. Extremely. Well, what do you value? Well, I value I value integrity and honesty and respect. <laughs> well, as opposed to what? Like, what else will you consider? Who doesn't? Yeah, exactly. And, and those are not values. Those are social agreements. Okay. They're ideologies. Um, and they're essential ones. You can't build civilizations without a certain amount of trust and integrity mm-hmm. and cooperation, can you? Um, And then another misconception is, well, I value my work. 
or I value my family. No, you don't. No to both of those. And you know, that, that gets people very upset. What do, what do you mean? I don't love my kids? No, of course you love your kids. But the big question is, did you want a family before you had a family? You know, a, a good portion of the time, the answer is yes. I always wanted a family. Yeah. So family couldn't have been the value. There was a value that you possessed that drove you to want to create family as an environment by which that value could be fulfilled. So that's, what you, that's where you're operating from. Or some people I know never wanted a family. I'm thinking about one person in my head right now. She was like, she found out she was pregnant. She's like, my life is over. Oh my God, I don't want to do this. This is the worst thing ever. And then she had a baby. And it was like instantly, I love you. Wow. I, I, don't, I don't know who I was before this second, but I'll never be the same. And something shifted. And you, know, you look at her and she, she's like a heroic mother. Like I, I look at, you know, like I was adopted. Um, the guy who adopted me died almost immediately after. No way. My mother, you know, she was, she was a, to be fair, developmentally disabled, but she got, you know, met this other guy and I did not have kind parents, the both of them. Um, they did things that a lot of people do and should go to prison for a very, very long time. So I look at, you know, this friend I'm thinking about, I look at her as a mother. I'm like, wow, you're a hero. I don't care what you got going on in any other aspect of your life, who you are for your kid, who that kid is for you, and, 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 and the stand you take for that child every day, well done, you're a legend. But she didn't realize that until that child came into being. But there was a value there that when that child was born, it instantly, or, or she, not it, had meaning <laughs> for this person. Yeah. It's like, wow, that's so cool. So identify, you know, if you won the lottery tomorrow and time and money were no longer an issue, how would you spend your time? I mean, after, after you bought your cars and the holidays and the spending sprees were over, what would you do with your time most of the time? And what would you stop doing? What would you never do again? Um, who would you surround yourself with and who would you never see again? That is one indicator of what your deeply held values are. Another one is write your own obituary. I know that sounds a little bit morbid, Whoa. but it's actually pretty inspiring. Write down, it's your funeral, what's being said about you? Well, not, not, I mean, in actuality, what would you ideally yeah. want it to be said about you? And that uncovers what your values are. You know, I had a coaching call the other day and my client was talking about his family and he realized, oh my God, family is not my value. What I value more than anything is love. And you hear that a lot. You know, if I have a family, I'm going to get unconditional love. But you know what? Even more than unconditional love, I get to give love all the time. So love was the value. So then you, know, you set up a goal. You got to ask yourself, how does getting this help me live in alignment and in service of that which I value most? Because a lot of times it's like, well, I want to lose weight. Well, why? Oh, so I can be confident and, you know, attractive or I could feel. No, 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 and no. What's the value and how does doing that? So it's six months from now, you've lost the weight, you're there. How do you live in greater alignment with your highest value? And in what ways are your values and your basic human needs not being met as a result of not being where you want to be? You know, yesterday I, I did a video on the, one of the most powerful words you can ask. What do you believe? Now, do people know what they believe? No, not very often. They have stories about what they believe, what they're told to believe. I'm not saying that your beliefs are false and what you think you believe you don't. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, but not always. Can and, you elaborate on that a little bit more? What, well, what do you mean, what do you believe? Like, what do you believe 
what, what truths do you believe? Yes, okay. exactly. And a lot of times people, um, like one of the great, one of, in, in, in my opinion, one of the greatest shows on TV, uh, this was way before my time, was in the 1970s, All in the Family okay. by Norman Lear. And Norman Lear created the show, um, and you know, it was about Archie Bunker, and this is in the U.S., and it, it was based on a, on a show in Britain, Till Death Do We Part. Okay. And it deals with people growing up very bigoted. And the reason why I think it's one of the greatest shows on TV is because it gave people a social mirror to look at their attitudes for the very first time in a way that made them laugh so they didn't shut it off, but a way that dawned on them and really sunk in later. Mm -hmm. And it sparked, I think, the most powerful thing you could ever do for a society, conversation. Not, Not arguments and fights, but true debate. Not debate in terms of trying to identify who's right, but rather what's right. And seeing things from a perspective other than your own. What if I were not me? What if I were someone who grew up in a different society, in a different culture, in a different neighborhood, with different parents? How would I see the world? And a lot of times you get a guy like Archie Bunker, who's a walking contradiction because he had all these biases and all this disgusting bigotry, yet in moments where he was able, or, or when the environment pushed him out of that ideology, you had a very sincere, deeply caring individual. And, and that's what made you not hate this guy. That's what made him so endearing. The show ran for about 10 years on TV wow. and, and created all these spinoffs. That's you know, huge like now. The Jeffersons, Archie Bunker's Place. I, I, don't think, I, I don't think society is, would be ready for something like that today. I don't know if we've devolved, but the subject matter was, was so visceral and so controversial. And it's like, well, where... Where does this guy get his beliefs from? And you know, I remember one episode I was watching even as a little kid where he talks about, but my dad, my dad felt this way. And how, how could I say my dad was wrong? You know, the guy who held my hand, who took me for ice cream, the guy who loved me, how could he be wrong? So you see this internal conflict that he never faced because to, to not believe what his dad believed would be to not love his dad, who he couldn't say, I love you, because his dad's already gone. So there's this internal conflict where if you asked him what he believed, he wouldn't tell you what he believed. He would tell you what he thought he believed because his dad told him, you believe this. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how common is that for so many of us? And what's worse, we're pretty unreliable in determining what we'll believe or what we'll do in a certain situation in the future. Oh, if I was them... Well, you have no idea what you would do very often, but it doesn't matter because it's not what you believe. It's what you perceive about what you believe that you're committed to, because that's an assertion and a conclusion that you came to. Somebody invited you to discuss your beliefs or your interpretation of them. So I say, what do you believe? I'm not judging you. I'm not imposing change on you. People, people say, well, people are resistant to change. Bullshit. People are resistant to the imposition of change, not the process of change itself. Change is, a, is one of the most natural and inevitable biological functions of every single species on the planet. We can't 
help but change. Yeah. It's, it's whether that change is by design or default. That's a whole different conversation. But change is one of the only ways we can ever arrive at what Abraham Maslow called self-actualization, which is the fulfillment of our highest human need. And, and Maslow defined it as self-actualization is when a writer must write or a painter must paint. So it's not just like what's important to me. I get to do that, but I get to get better at it. I get to grow. I get to perform. So you ask somebody, well, what do you believe? And you allow them to be autonomous in their answer. Even if that answer changes tomorrow, where are they today? Because if where they are today allows them to feel a sense of autonomy in setting micro behaviors, that's the second thing, the external environment. If I can just engage in a certain behavior pattern long enough, one, it shows me that the worst possible thing I'm imagining happening is not likely to happen. And if it does, I can handle it. And I'm a different person. I'm a a totally different person three months from now than I am today. So how the world occurs to me today and all the threats and the pitfalls that abound in my imagination a month from now, not only do not exist, but if they occur, they challenge me, they excite me, they invigorate me, they don't stifle me and shut me down. And I was reading on somebody's post, I, I love these posts where you see someone who was a few hundred pounds and they, they lost all that weight. And it's so inspiring when they share that with other people and you see kind comments. Sometimes you see comments that make you lose your faith in humanity. And th- <laughs> this one girl said, You know, if you would have told me three years ago that I would dedicate my life to exercise and inspiring other people to exercise, I would have laughed. That never, that couldn't be me. And yes, yes, when I first walked into a gym, it was Ferrigno's on McDonald Avenue in Brooklyn, owned by Matty Ferrigno, Lou's father. And you walked into the gym and people were gigantic with massive muscles, grunting, tons of body hair, slamming heavy, heavy weights down on the ground, fighting. And and I'll tell you what, the men were even worse. And I I walked into that gym, 15 years old, physically deformed in the face. Like everyone who looked at me was, whoa, have to manage their emotions and, and try to act normal. And some didn't care to, you know, like what, what happened to you kid? But I don't know. <laughs> just this, just, just the way it was. And I, I remember I was so terrified to exercise. I went as far away from what I call general population as I could into the furthest corner. There was an inclined chest press machine. I stayed on it for 90 minutes. Boy, was I sore the next day. (laughs) And I swore I will never do this again. I'm never going back. But you know what? I did go back and not back with confidence, back with fear and hesitation. Within a year, a year is a very short time. The most important thing in my life was exercise. And it starts with that micro It didn't start when I got my diet sorted out, when I knew the program I was on, when I started seeing the results. It didn't start then. It started when I walked very nervously, hesitantly, wanting to turn back, but took that first step right into that gym. And then it continued when I took the next step and the next set or even the next rep and the next one after that. So these micro commitments compound into a bigger sense of identity. And again, the bigger your identity, the larger your scope of possibility. Mm-hmm. So it's behaviors. It's not about being motivated. It's not about being committed. Those things help, but they don't produce change. Just like I can't score on a football field or a football pitch with commitment. 
I have to engage in certain behaviors that produce a very specific result, then I get to see the scoreboard change. Because you can be committed, but you don't put forth those behavior changes and then it doesn't matter how committed you are. You're just... Yeah, or, or you try to take somebody else's behaviors as your own. Well, you need to do this. And if you come out, like, like I, oh God, I, like these podcasts about why I never cheat on my diet. Well, could you imagine someone who's struggling day to day, not because they're lazy, not, you know, I, I went on a rant about this the other day. Okay. You know, I have had clients that I've shared yeah. where I did the behavioral coaching and they did the hands-on training. And before I met these clients, their trainer would tell me, well, they're lazy. You know, they don't show up on time. They're inconsistent. I think they're a bit full of shit, to be honest. I am at my wits end. Can you do something with this person? And you get to know, you know, this client that you're sharing. It turns out that they started with nothing and they're worth tens of millions. It's like, wait, hold on. Hold on. These people are the one percenters. And they got there by being not committed, lazy, undisciplined. Something's wrong. Yeah. Something is absolutely wrong. Um, it, it's like the, the heavyweight champion of the world is, is afraid to take a punch. Something doesn't match up. And so you have to ask yourself, are my assumptions true or are things a lot more complicated than they appear? And, you know, maybe, maybe the, the transformation, when you go from being a personal trainer to somebody's hero or the hero for a lot of people, I think it's not the day you get this specialized certification, which is great, or the day you get your advanced degree, which is great. It's the day you have the subtle realization, no, I do not train the human body. I train the human being that lives inside of that body. That's the shift. And you hold someone in unconditional positive regard. And you allow them to make micro behavior changes. Reduce the size of the commitment until you get to the point where they can adhere to it. Because it's ridiculous. And once they do, you have to take them retrospectively back in time and go, what happened? So you're someone who's not capable of exercising, you've never been able to change, you know, you were just born this way or whatever your story is. And now you set and adhere to a fitness based goal successfully and almost flawlessly. Explain this to me. What's that story? What strengths do you now know you have that you were not aware of when we first started on this journey? Hmm. If you were coaching someone just like you, How would you tell them to utilize those exact strengths that you've demonstrated to transform their own life? Explain to me how you're powerless now. And you start to reframe somebody's story about who they are. You're giving them different tools. And when you utilize different tools, if you're an artist and you have a different paintbrush or different tools, what shows up on the canvas is a little bit different to you. How, How that canvas occurs to you is going to be different based on the tools you have to work with. Same thing. So I I am a big believer in behavior change and inquiry where you allow people to change their vantage points. Kind of like the story about Michelangelo and Mayor Sardini. Um, Sardini was the mayor of Florence and he really wanted to um, please uh, the Medici, Lorenzo Medici, because Lorenzo Medici ran Florence. And if you could please him, well, you know, it's very good for your career. And if you displeased him, well, you might disappear. So <laughs> it's more than your career at stake. So the, Lorenzo Medici wanted to commission the statue of the David. And 
they had this, this beautiful marble. The marble was exquisite, but I guess everything that presents an advantage very often presents a liability. It was so exquisite, but, but the grain of the marble was so temperamental, so finicky. It was so hard to work with, and very talented artists had been commissioned to work with this marble, and they just, they just couldn't do it. And one such artist ruined the marble nearly. He bore a hole right through the center. Wow. Yeah, he probably turned up floating somewhere. And That's why we've never heard of him. That's why we never heard of him, the unnamed artist. And in desperation, they heard of this young up-and-coming artist, Michelangelo, and they invited him into the, the church of the Santa Maria, the basement where they were holding this marble, and he looked at it, and this, this whole story around, he saw a vision of the David trapped inside the marble, and the way the David was standing would mean that the hole in the marble would have had to have been cut away anyway. So it was irrelevant. And he took the commission, and before they were getting ready to unveil this masterpiece, now, that, he, Michelangelo never saw the David in its completion until he was just about done working on it. And it's on this scaffold, and Mayor Soderini comes in, and he, he considers himself somewhat of a patron of the arts himself. You know how this is going. <laughs> and Michelangelo just points what do you think and he looks at it and he he has this uncomfortable look on his face and his face starts to squint and he turns to Michelangelo and says it's all wrong the face the dimensions of the nose it's 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 too big okay so here's some guy with an opinion telling arguably the greatest artist who has ever lived how he can make his work better God, how many of those people do we run into every day? <laughs> so here's Michelangelo listening to this. I mean, you, you, couldn't even, you couldn't even live two weeks in his world with the level of effort it took to develop that level of mastery. And he's, he's just, rather than telling him to piss off, which is what most people understandably would do, he looked up and he said, well, you know what? You're right. Thank you. Ho- hold on. Let me fix this. And he grabs his hammer and chisel, and he says, let me, let me go to work on this. And he starts walking up the scaffolding. And as he's walking up the scaffolding, he very discreetly collects marble dust in between his fingertips. And he gets up to the top, and he starts hitting very gently the nose with the hammer and the chisel, just so you can hear the dink, dink, yeah. dink. And as he's hitting the nose ever so gently, not even putting a scratch on it, he's dropping progressively more and more marble dust onto the ground to give the illusion that he is reshaping this nose. And he he comes down off the scaffolding and invites Soderini to take his place. You're underneath the nose. Get a better perspective. And he has him come up where, from his vantage point, the nose looks different. And he looks at this and says, bravo, that is magnificent. That's what I'm talking about. The dimensions are perfect. Nothing had changed. The only thing that had changed is he wasn't invalidated. And because he was validated and because it was his opinion that led to a series of actions, he was committed to the result in the first place. Yeah. And he stood in a different position. So 
the David occurred very differently to him. And that's training where you utilize someone's own internal values and beliefs and perspectives and aspirations, not your own, to validate, to uplift, to support, to not threaten and have them operate from a perspective of investment and safety and then have them engage in behaviors that alter the vantage point. So they're looking at the same thing, but it occurs differently. And they themselves are different at that point. So if you can get somebody just to engage in something for 90 days, it doesn't matter what the commitment is, just that it's consistent. At the end of the 90 days, how they approach problems in fitness will be different because they themselves are different. They're different hormonally, synaptically, biochemically. The structure of their brain has changed. They themselves have changed. You're not dealing with the same person. How do you deal with the distractions, though? How do you deal with getting people away from the distractions? Because today's day and age, it seems like anything can distract us. My phone will always distract me from doing what I want to do. Like today I'm working on, uh, earlier today I was working on an episode of my podcast, and I'm like, you know what? I'm shutting my phone off. Mm -hmm. How can you help somebody to eliminate some of these distractions? Well, I don't think you can eliminate distractions in today's day and age as as much as mitigate or manage. Um, I think mitigate's a, a very good word, actually. And once, first of all, what are you willing to leave? You know, there might be 10 things that I think my client really could change. What's the one thing that they feel they're most capable of changing? Because if you start telling someone, especially someone who has built their whole ideology around, I'm a go-getter, I work hard, you know, I don't sleep, success never rests, all that (laughs) stuff. And you tell them, you know, when you have a backlit device, it interrupts your sleep patterns. And when you interrupt your sleep patterns, you don't get into REM sleep. And when you do that, um, amyloid proteins have a tendency to build up in your brain. And if that happens, you might not have the cognitive acuity that you're going to depend on to be a you know, successful person in the future. That's a lot. That's a contradiction of their very belief systems. And you know, if you, if you've, it's kind of like if me and you were sitting here, it's a very sunny day, and neither of us um, have sunglasses. Not very smart. But nope. let's say I brought out these sunglasses, I brought you a pair, and I gave you a green pair of sunglasses. And I wore the red. And we did this whole interview. But after the interview, it was like, you know what? I like these. And you're like, oh, I like mine. So we'll keep them. And we walked around for a whole year. And I was walking around in red sunglasses for one whole year. And you were walking around with green sunglasses for a whole year. Then we got back together in the same spot and did a follow-up podcast. I said, well, how's things been? How's your world? You would say, well, my world's pretty green. Yeah. And I'd be thinking, what are you, an idiot? <laughs> I've been walking around the world for a year. Let me tell you something, buddy. When you've seen what I've seen, world's pretty red. And you're looking at me going, he's mental. I, I cannot imagine how somebody could walk around and perceive the world as being red when I know it's green. Now, what if I presented you with an emphatic argument about the redness of it all? You would think I'm even more insane. You would fight even harder, because that's absurd. What if I presented you research? People have done their studies and you know, trees and grass are actually green. Like there's chlorophyll in that shit. And you're like, what? I don't even, I don't even know what that is, but I have plants, I have trees outside. You know, it's like, it's red. So no matter how much we fight, no matter how motivated we are, 
the world still looks the same to us because we're looking through a certain filter. But if I could safely get you to trade glasses with me, the second you put them on, demonstration's more powerful than conversation. Absolutely. It's like, oh my God. Wow, I never, I never, I never saw the world like this. It is a bit red. And I'm like, wow, you know what? It is green. And if we can have safety in that, the next step is to take off our glasses and we realize, wow, you know what? The world was never green or red in the first place. It was an array of colors. There were so much more possibilities and diversity and variance than either of us could have imagined looking through our myopic filters or even looking through the filter of one another. That's a totally different position from which the world occurs to you, isn't it? Yeah. So if you could take one thing with somebody and have them succeed, Maybe it's just waking up, you know, a little bit earlier, or maybe it, it's it's taking processed carbohydrate and refined sugar out of their diet. Just one meal with that that muffin they get at the coffee shop every single day. Oh, but you know it's bran. Okay, yeah, great. Um, <laughs> if you could just replace that, or, or or better yet, ask a series of questions that get them to decide to replace that and go, oh well, you know what? I've done this then you could kind of take a look at not eliminating distractions, not maybe, well, what about checking email twice a day? What, are you kidding me? My whole self-worth is based on how I react to email, so I'm busy. Yeah, you're very busy, but you're kind of like an octopus on rollerblades. A lot of motion, not a lot of direction, though. And if you could do that, maybe you can get somebody to manage their devices and their distractions more effectively. So it's incremental, and let them pick let them decide. Yeah. Do we have time for a story about one of my favorite trainers in the world? Oh, absolutely. Go okay. ahead. Let me hear it. Once upon a time, there was one of my favorite trainers in the world, and we had an event called Meeting of the Minds. Now, Meeting of the Minds was kind of like the TED for the fitness industry, kind of like when TED was first getting started. Mm-hmm. They said, oh, do you like TED? It's like, I don't know. Who's TED? What, my next door neighbor? Yeah, he's all right. <laughs> so nobody even knew who TED was way back when, right? And... Uh, Richard Boyd, who at that time had just sold off PT on the net to a company called FitPro, and at the time they were like a real, they were a really big uh, media company, and collectively we pulled over 400 of the top decision makers in the fitness industry, like the who's who of the fitness industry, we put them in the audience and we had nearly two dozen of the most world-renowned, highly respected, accomplished experts come up to Keystone, Colorado, which is nearly 10,000 foot elevation, right? And we were going to have them present 20 minutes on their most compelling insights, their research, what they're doing, you know, why this is critical. So everyone gets up and, you know, they're getting up on stage and talking about how they're changing the world and what they've discovered. And it's all brilliant stuff. Some of them agree, some of them absolutely disagree. And then Annette Lang gets on stage and you know, there's nothing I can say about Annette other than I love her. And she gets up and goes, hey guys, she's from Brooklyn. And yes, she literally talks like that. And she tells a story about this woman in Manhattan, I believe it was on the Upper East Side. And she was, tr- she trained her And one day, she had dropped this woman off. She had taken her back into her building. She comes out of the elevator and the dorm and says, Hey, um, are you Mrs., you know, whatever, (laughs) whatever her name is, uh, Nurkin Firkin's trainer? And I doubt that's her real name. (laughs) And she said, Yes, yes, I trained Mrs. Nurkin Firkin. And she said, You know, and he says to her, You are probably 
if you don't mind me saying, the worst trainer I've ever seen in my life. And so Annette, just, you know, well, thanks. Why do you say that? I said, well, every, I see you with her. And she smokes cigarettes outside with you at the end of her session. And you come in here every week and you bring her cookies. What type of a trainer are you? You're killing her. Like, this is literally the doorman. And she says, well, I don't think you understand the backstory of this woman. I'm not killing her. I'm actually giving her the ability to die a lot slower than the track she was on. So this woman lived alone. She was kind of like a cantankerous old lady, you know, didn't like anyone, and most people responded in kind. And she hired a lot of trainers. You know, her family was like, yeah, you probably should train. You know, you, you, just, you just smoke, you're unhealthy, you never leave the house. She was very, very wealthy and hired all these trainers and just hated all of them because they all told her what to do. And, you know, hey, if you want to lose weight, guess what? Stop eating your cookies. That simple. No, I don't know. Maybe, maybe a woman who's lonely, living on her own, those cookies are the only source of joy and comfort she has. Maybe she's cantankerous, not because she's being hurtful, but rather she's hurting. And by taking in a cookie that the, all of the ingredients are the perfect cocktail for increasing tryptophan uptake in the brain, which releases serotonin, which is the only way this woman could ever mitigate the feelings that she struggles to live with day in, day out. Maybe that's what this person's going through. Right? Maybe she's, she, she's not an outcome. She's not a stat. Maybe she's a human being who's complex. And Annette sees that you know, she's, she's fired all these trainers. And you know, someone in her family said, there's this woman, Annette, who's kind of famous. She's a world-famous trainer. And um, you know, gosh, if anyone could help you, she trains trainers all over the world. We think she can. And Annette did something insane with this woman. On their very first orientation... She didn't tell this woman how she was going to eat and how she was going to train. She sat down and spoke to her like a real grown-up human being. And she listened. And what she discovered is what this woman really would want is just companionship and someone who respected her enough to not tell her what to do every five seconds. So this is like, I'll make you a deal. And, you know, this woman was like an exception seeker where, you know, she takes the opposite. I said, well, this will work. How do you know it'll work? I've tried it before. It didn't work. Well, because the sky's blue. Well, I was out last night at sundown. It was kind of orange and red. What do you know? So she's dealing with this type of woman. She's like, so woman says, well, what do you think will work? And that says, well, maybe nothing will work. What do you mean nothing will work? Well, this might not even work for you, but I'll make you a deal. What if we just went for a walk, a little bit of movement, and you could bring your cigarettes? Because smoking was a big issue for her. I'm never going to give up my smokes. Don't give up your smokes. You could smoke, and your favorite food, they were talking, cookies, I'll bake your cookies once a week, but you just walk. Now, the woman was eating cookies, store-bought, probably not as good as Annette baked, but that's not part of the story. She was smoking cigarettes in her house, not moving, and being sedentary actually kills more people around the world than smoking. Now, neither one is good, and both of them together are very, very bad, but she was doing both. So Annette got her to break the habit of doing one of those very deadly things. Yeah. But you know what? After a while, the woman liked walking with Annette because Annette's funny. She's, and, and she, she, she's pretty cool to hang around. And then they would walk a little bit faster and faster. And it became very enjoyable. The woman started looking forward to her walks. And then Annette, out of nowhere, was like, you know what? 
you'd really be able to get a lot more out of these walks that the woman was already enjoying. She already had a bit of self-efficacy. I know I've used that word a lot. Self-efficacy is, is what I define as the ability to believe in, in your capacity to initiate and sustain activities in, in congruence with what you want. Mm-hmm. So that'll be my definition. And what if you didn't smoke? Just join the walks and maybe before. So the woman cut back on her cigarettes without realizing she cut back on her cigarettes. Eventually, the conversation was, what, what are your favorite cigarettes every single day? And, you know, like after lunch, first thing in the morning, before I go to bed. And the woman actually, through a series of questions, agreed to give up smoking except for those three. So now she cut back dramatically months later. And you know this story is going. Eventually, she quit smoking. Still ate the cookies every week, but she went from being sedentary to active, from being a smoker to a non-smoker, and you can get the most motivated, passionate, enthusiastic trainer filled with conviction and vigor, and they all would have failed because Annette meted her wish, met her wish she needed to be met. And think about how remarkable it is from someone who is a hermit I almost said hobbit. <laughs> From someone who is a, um, someone who's a hobbit to reach things on their show. No, someone who is a hermit to get out of the house and, and not only comply with, but eventually look forward to movement as part of your lifestyle. And here's another deadly risk factor, isolation and loneliness. Oh, it's awful. So she went from being isolated, sedentary smoker to having social interaction, being active and not smoking. And you're going to tell Annette you suck as a trainer because you didn't self-righteously forbid her to give up everything she's attached to that day, day one? Hey, you could be right or you could be effective. How many clients are you going to lose to be right? How many marriages are broken up because I want to be right? You know, how how many people limit their income because then they get to be right? We'll sacrifice so much and so many other people to be right. Being right doesn't mean shit. You could be right or you could be effective. Guess which one adds more value to your life and the life of people around you? Annette is, she demonstrated an understanding of behavior change. She demonstrated empathy. She demonstrated strategy. She knew where that woman was going. That woman didn't know, but she knew. She didn't relinquish her professionalism. She upheld the highest level of it. One of my favorite trainers. And I I have a long list of trainers I, I really like. You know, Jeff is one of them. We talked about Jeff oh, yeah. last week. Yeah. You know, that guy just needed to uh, take those glasses off, trade places a little bit. Bobby, there's a couple of ways I want to ask this, uh, this, this final, this closing question here. Um, what would you say to your younger self? And the other thing is... <laughs> You're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is... You're so informative and educated. You have such a a driving passion for what you do, for affecting the lives of other people. Not changing the lives, like you said earlier, but affecting the lives of other people. Are you doing this as a way to help um, your younger self? How am I trying to say this? Providing the knowledge to people that you wanted to experience as a child. That is a great question. And the only honest answer I can give to the, to the second question is I don't know. I have no idea. Now, I could tell you a story 
about why I'm doing this mm-hmm. and I can make it sound really good in a way that positions me quite favorably and makes me feel good about what I'm doing, but I have no idea, but quite possibly, maybe that's exactly what I'm doing. Maybe that has nothing to do with it. I know that was a major factor when I first got started because by me sitting down one-on-one and coaching a client or coaching a member of my team as I started growing, you know, at 19 years old, I was forced into management, not forced. I mean, I could have said no, but, um, (laughs) I was living on my own. So I would have been broken homeless and I was dating someone at the time. And I was like, Oh my God, if I'm broke and I'm homeless, you know, she's never, she's never going to date you. She's never going to, she's going to leave me and I don't get get depressed. I'm going to start overeating and I'm going to be like broke and homeless and fat. Eating cookies and yeah, life is never, life couldn't possibly get any worse. Um, unless you're ugly, then life gets really bad, (laughs) which, which I thought like, yeah, all right. I wasn't that attractive. So yeah, I, I, I guess that bit. But for me, it was when I was focusing on helping someone else, I didn't have enough mental energy to focus on what was going on with me. Mm. So I never resolved my problems. I just rose above them. And, you know, that might be a healthy thing to, I'm sure there's a lot of psychologists out there that would say, well, that strategy worked. I'm sure there's a lot of psychologists out there would say, well, that's very unhealthy and you should probably like lay down on my couch for the next 11 years until we can work this <laughs> stuff out. But that helped me because it gave me a, per- uh, Dr. Victor Frankl, one of my favorite books I've ever read. And I'm not a big fan. People are going to hate me for this. I'm not a big fan of a lot of self-help books, I'm not even going to get into why, but one of my favorite books I've ever read and it was, it, it was so influential was Dr. Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And this is a guy who didn't arrive at his insights um, just because he frivolously came up with an opinion. He was a prisoner at Auschwitz and Dachau concentration camps during World War II. And he said that success like happiness cannot be pursued. It must ensue as one's personal de- as, as a consequence of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself. And I believe that wholeheartedly. And you, you, I, if you spend your life pursuing happiness, that in and of itself almost guarantees you'll never have it. Yep. The, the further, the more tenaciously you chase it, the greater distance you put between yourself and it. Find something that you love, something that serves a community, something that serves someone, something that involves the the complete power and focus that you can put into self-expression and happiness will just kind of show up. Yeah. And I, I read that because my boss, you know, Mitchell Pacifico, um, this is the guy who, who probably influenced me positively more than anybody else in my life. And I've had some incredible mentors. You know, he recommended I read that book because um, he read it. He did a lot for him and I took it to heart. And that's what I did. I said, you know, when, when I am struggling within, I will focus without. I'll focus on someone or something outside of myself. Does that mean I'm in denial? No, it doesn't because I loved doing what I was doing. You know, I, I, I became euphoric um, after, you know, while I was doing it, I was, you know, quite often in a state of flow. I didn't realize how I was feeling, but after I was like, wow, that felt amazing. And so I wanted to do it more and more and more in order to do that more. You know, I I wanted to do things that maybe I hadn't tried. And if you're going to become something, if you are 
setting out to do something you have never done before, you must become someone you have never been before. And that's why you got to pick up the next book. Or, you know, I'm not someone who goes, oh, don't waste your time watching movies. Only losers do that. Only read books. No, watch the next film. What does that teach you? You know, read the next book. Fiction, nonfiction. Read the next textbook. Read the next science book. Read the next novel. You know, people go, oh, novels. It's a waste of time. Really? So The Old Man in the Sea? The whole point of, of Hemingway writing that book is you could, you could be defeated but not broken. Yeah, that's useful. You know, <laughs> that's useful in life. That might show up a couple of times when you're going through it, you know, or, or the essence of true selflessness and magnanimity of a Sidney Carlton um, in Dickens' uh, Tale of Two Cities. I think that's useful. So read everything, experience everything, because as you become more, you'll be capable of doing more and giving more. And the more you give, the more you receive automatically, even if you're not receiving it from the person who you gave something to. It's, it's that feeling. It's that reinforcement. It's that congruence with your sense of purpose. That's what you're getting out of it. You know, I've, I've never been big into outcomes. Um, I've always been big into process. You know, the payoff is in the process. I'm not doing this because, wow, you know, I'll get a better car or, you know, I'll get a bigger house. Yes, those things do happen. No, I'm doing this because I get to do this. Yeah. And I love doing this. I get to do it well. So that's a long-winded answer about, you know, was I trying to help, you know, like little Bobby? Maybe. Maybe. Don't know. I love it. That's a, that's a great note to end on, Bobby. Uh, where can people find you? What are you up to? Any closing thoughts? Yeah, well, you could find me. Like, right now, we're in the park at Playa del Rey. But don't come <laughs> here, because I'll be stalkerish and weird. But um, you can find me on Facebook. We'll be gone, too. I mean. Yeah, so we're at the park at Playa del Rey, sitting at the... You can find me on Facebook, Instagram. Um, I have a website. I say that like I'm so proud in the 21st <laughs> century. It's like, you're all technically savvy, and I couldn't even like drop a pin to get you here. Um, so it's, uh, it's Robert Capuccio, C-A-P-P-U-C-C-I-O, because I know that's not easy to spell, dot com. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm on uh, LinkedIn although not often. So you can, I'm easy to find, I think. Excellent. Bobby, it's been uh, such a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for oh, being with me today. This was fun. Thank you. It's awesome. That's it for this episode of The Principles of Fitness, everyone. I just want to give Bobby a special thanks for being with us on the show today. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe to the podcast, and leave a review. Stay tuned for the next episode of The Principles of Fitness.